Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things mission critical teams. Mission critical teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the TeamCast. I'm joined today by Dr. Art Finch, a noted psychologist from the U.S. Special Operations Command. And today we're going to be talking about why do some people, some individuals choose to cross, voluntarily choose to cross from the ordinary world to the extraordinary world? Why do some people choose to live a life where they continue to make that journey into immersive and urgent world of criticality while others choose to live in sort of what they would term a normal life? What is it about those who choose the hard path and enter into the world of emergency medicine, tactical law enforcement, fire, special operations, et cetera, that pushes them towards a life of increased uncertainty while the rest of the world seems to look at that like it's aberrant or strange? With me today is Dr. Art Finch. Dr. Colonel, retired Art Finch, is a licensed psychologist who has spent over 23 years providing leadership consultation and assessment and selection support for a wide range of special operation units and other federal agencies. He's a graduate of the U.S. Army Airborne, SEER School, and Ranger Schools with more than 20 combat deployments to both Afghanistan and Iraq. He retired at the rank of Colonel. In addition to being the founding director at the newly formed Mission Critical Psychology Division at MCTI, Art serves as a research scientist with the Institute of Human Machine Cognition, leads a private consulting practice called the Gage Group, and serves as an adjunct professor at North Carolina University. Art, welcome to the team cast. Thank you, Preston. It's, it's great to be here. It's funny, looking back over the last decade that I've known you, Every now and then you bump into these people who change your life forever, and you've ended up being one of those in my life, and I'm honored to be here and uh, grateful for the chance to share some ideas with people that I know we both love and are very passionate about. Well, thank you very much. And that's very kind of you because I feel exactly the same way about you. To our listeners, you should know that I first met Dr. Finch, what, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I walked into a particular unit down at Fort Bragg, and I'm I'm there to learn, as many of you know, I'm studying the tacit knowledge transfer problem, trying to understand how people learn to navigate uncertainty. And it's the first time I'm really around folks that other people would entitle operators. And some of it makes sense to me, as we'll talk about, and some of it makes no sense to me. And they park me in this office because they need to go do some things. And sitting in that office is Dr. Art Finch. And he says, I said, hi, how are you? And we get this conversation. I was like, can you help me understand some of this? And he proceeded to mentor me in the ways of that world and has continued to do so ever since. And so with that in mind, I'm going to start us off in this conversation, sort of understanding the profile of an operator, right? What makes operators, whether they be in special operations or fire, emergency medicine, or any of the mission critical teams, what makes them somewhat unique? And I'm going to do it by sort of relating a personal experience that happened to me, which I know that you and many of the people listening to will actually understand, even though it comes from a different world. I was one of those kids that really didn't fit in high school, like really, and in college. I, I didn't get the joke. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand what these people were talking about and their values and what they cared about. And it's not like I knew. I just knew that whatever that was wasn't right. And so the first time I really figured out that, that I found a group of people that made sense to me is my first experience as a wilderness guide, working with a bunch of bohemian-like savages out in the wilderness. And these people, who many of whom are still my closest friends, are the people that I suddenly realized, oh, there are other people like me. It wasn't long afterwards, however, that this other phenomenon, which I want, I think you'll resonate with, happened to me, which is I returned home after leading a couple of expeditions, going through our staff training, and I returned home to my high school friends. And I was really excited to tell them about this life that I found that was amazing to me. And 
as soon as I started explaining it to them, this life, they started looking at me like I was crazy, right? They were like, you're living in the woods in the rain with juvenile delinquents eating oatmeal every day? Like, what? that's insane. Why would you choose to do that? And I didn't understand why they wouldn't want to choose that. Like, there was this gulf, this space that was created between us. And I realized a couple of things. I realized that I could never go back to that world. Like, that world was now gone to me. And that I didn't want to go back. Like, I didn't want to join their world. I didn't want to become an accountant, nothing against accountants. I didn't want to do the nine to five. I wanted to live a life where I was constantly immersed in these problems that I would have to adapt and resolve. And part of that was because I learned a little bit differently. I thought a little bit different. My brain seemed to work a little bit differently than than theirs did. And so when I first met Art down in 2012, down at Fort Bragg, We were having these conversations, and it was that moment where I realized, how weird is it that me as a wilderness guide have more in common with these JSOC operators than I do with my high school friends? And as Art and I got to know each other, and I started to think about his research and the work he was doing, I realized there was a lot to be understood about why those of you who listen are so different than the rest of the world and why you're so close to the people you're currently close to. And this matters in things like transition, right? What are you transitioning from and to? Who decides what is normal? Who decides what is comfortable and what is appropriate in your life, right? Whether or not you choose to be, say, domesticated or not domesticated, and what what are the implications of that? And so with that, Art, I kind of want you to take us back to when, you know, those conversations that you and I had about when you first realized, hey, the people that you're working with aren't like everybody else. Okay, so it's embarrassing to think about how little I understood about the special operations community, even as I was becoming a member of the special operations community. I had been through ranger school with a whole bunch of special operators, as well as conventional folks that were qualifying for their for their ranger tabs. and. My first assignment in special operations was at the 75th Ranger Regiment down at the headquarters at Fort Benning. And as a classically trained clinical psychologist, I had really learned how to view the world through a lens of pathology, where medicine is designed to identify what's wrong and then try to help people recover from it or live with it or fix it. And so somebody shows up in your office, you're expecting something to be wrong. And I showed up at my first assignment there at the Ranger Regiment, and I still had that lens to a large degree. And so as as people started showing up in my office for assessment and selection, I, I started to notice some things that really stood out that were very different than anything I had expected and that really defied any preconceived notions I had. I'd always thought of commandos as just kind of knuckle-dragging thugs and expected to be surrounded by that. And what I discovered was very, very different in a whole bunch of really wonderful ways. And when you're doing assessment and selection, what I found myself doing was using a lot of tools that would normally be used to identify psychopathology on really super healthy people, truly some of the psychologically healthiest people I had ever met. And that, that kind of caught me off guard because my pathology model was failing. I wasn't finding a lot wrong. In fact, I was finding things right about them that I really didn't expect. And I think probably one of the most profound moments was the first class where I was flying solo as the only psychologist doing the assessment and selection there at the Ranger Regiment. And when we're assessing a candidate, we give them a packet of tests. We always start with an IQ test and then personality testing. And then to it changes and varies over the years, different types of testing, looking at how they interact with the world, how they solve problems. But I started scoring IQ tests, and I started to notice this trend where I was seeing numbers that were the antithesis of a knuckle-dragging thug. I was seeing IQ scores that medical schools would want, that law schools would want, the PhD programs would want that any company in Silicon Valley would want. We're talking top 15% of IQ. And that didn't make any sense to me. I was like, why in the world are these people in the army? Why in the world are they not using this big brain that they apparently have that I didn't even realize they had to do the kinds of things that people that are that smart usually do? And 
I, it was literally to the point where I would bring, I brought some of these young men in, these young rangers, 19, 20 years old. And, you know, does your mom know where you are? Why are you here? Like, you should be doing anything but this, being in the army thing, lying in the mud, freezing, surviving rain, because that's apparently mandatory for good training and all of those things. And their answers were interesting to me because what I found started to discover is a really significant cohort of people who did not kind of similar to your experience, Preston, they they didn't fit the traditional academic model. It honestly it had failed them. And it failed to optimize who they were and the potential that they had. And when I would ask them, why aren't you in college? I would share their IQ scores with them, explain to them what that meant, that they're super bright, that they could do anything that they wanted. Why are you here? And I would be met with eye rolls of, oh my goodness, I would never stay in school. Like I took early enlistment just to get out of school. I hated school. Apparently, I failed to live up to my potential when I'm in school. And it's it's funny. I love that fail to live up to my potential statement because I have heard that literally thousands of times now over the years doing these assessments where it almost becomes a, a badge of honor in my mind because they fail to live up to their potential in a very structured, formatted system that really is designed to play to the middle of the bell curve and not necessarily address the unique needs of people that are very bright and who might have a little bit different learning profile. And as I started to understand this, uh, this probably really requires a little bit of background on IQ, where average IQ in the general population is 100. And I'm not necessarily going to share actual IQ scores in this public forum, but I will tell you that the IQ scores I was seeing are in the top 15% across the board. But there are different types of IQ. Most of the time when people talk about IQ, they're talking about full-scale IQ. And the problem with IQ is I can't just crack somebody's head open and find a little organic LED screen that tells me what their IQ score is. It doesn't work like that. The best thing that I can do is use a whole bunch of little tests that I think are getting at different parts of this thing we call IQ. Like I might ask questions about vocabulary and I might give them puzzles to solve that look at attention span and working memory and processing speed and general knowledge about the world around them and so on and so forth. And then I pull all of those little tests together into this thing we'll call an IQ test and try and and have the most accurate estimate I can of if they did have that little screen in their head, what would it be? And what I what I started to notice is I had full-scale IQs that were way above average. And then I also started to notice that we break IQ into two core components, verbal and performance IQ, as a way to, to kind of break that out into a couple different ways of thinking. And verbal IQ is what it sounds like. It's the words you know. It's the information you understand about the world around you. It's basic story problems, which even though they may include math, really a lot of times it's about reading comprehension to try and figure out what math you're supposed to do. And verbal IQ is powerful for a, a number of reasons. It's, it's really the intelligence that is formed from the earliest of ages when we're first learning how to talk, when we're first learning how to communicate and interact with the world around us. That's really the part that comes online in the most entrenched way in our brain. And the reason I highlight that is because if somebody suffers a traumatic brain injury and they've never taken an IQ test before, and I'm now trying to assess how much damage there is, Verbal IQ will give me the best estimate of what their pre-injury functioning would have been because it's the one that's most diffuse across the brain. It's the one that is most intact and most likely to survive that kind of impact unless it directly impacts verbal processing centers in the brain. So that's really important. The other important thing about verbal IQ is that it's highly susceptible to educational opportunities. So I can have somebody who's very bright, who is not exposed to a lot of verbal information or not exposed to it in a way that's easily accessible to them for any number of reasons we'll talk about in a minute. And that verbal IQ score will end up being lower simply because of the experiences that they've had. Performance IQ, really the way I think about it in a very simplified fashion is this is how dense the gray matter is. This is how fast the network is, how thick the, the connections are in the brain. And 
to me, this is really one of the more important parts of IQ in terms of a special operator, because for those who, who are special operators that might be listening to this, this is what lets you do CQB well. Performance IQ is processing speed, working memory, visual memory, the ability to manipulate visual spatial things in your head without having to necessarily physically be able to do so and to do it quickly. And that that's a really, really big deal. And what I started to notice is that I saw verbal IQ scores that were significantly lower across the board than the performance IQ scores. And it's not unusual to see a few points variance between verbal and performance IQ, but these differences were way beyond statistical error. They were really substantial. I, I might see somebody with a performance IQ in the 130s and a verbal IQ of 119, which is still way above average, but represents a significant deficit compared to how bright they actually appear to be. So I really wanted to understand what was what was going on with that. And this is this is one of those areas that are the, the special operators to your question, Preston, really started to stand out as different because it impacted everything that they do in training. It impacted everything that they they do in problem solving without them probably even realizing it, because it means that they process information differently. They don't respond to traditional academic settings as well. And they really benefit more from an experiential, hands-on type of an approach to things. But taking a step back, it really raised the question of why. Why do they look like this? Is this just, is this just a different learning style? Is there, is there something more going on? So I started drilling down. And what I started to find were a lot of what in a, in a traditional academic setting would be viewed as attention deficit disorder, mild to moderate learning disabilities, and other challenges with learning, which oftentimes for these very bright kids was simply they were bright but bored. And, and their big IQs taught them basically that they could get away with not really trying. That they they could kind of like give a half-hearted effort, pick up enough information in the class to still pass while failing to live up to their potential. And that left them a lot of time to do other things. I think a lot of them were bored and they just learned how to disappear into their brains and and be there, but not really be present because they didn't need to be. And so they could entertain themselves in that big brain of theirs. And one of the hallmarks of this is regardless of whether it's traditional attention deficit disorder, where there's probably some neurological functioning impairment, or this bright but bored, or learning how to be lazy, or all of those other things, a lot of this really focuses on challenges with sustained attention for any number of reasons, and that impacts everything. So Preston, perhaps this would be a good place for you to jump in with your background in education and talk about the impact that this very different learning style or inability to successfully interface with a traditional academic approach, some of the things you may be seeing. Yeah, it's a really, I really appreciate you sort of taking us down and giving us that background because when I'm going up and meeting with instructor cadres, which is where I spend most of my time, right? So we're in a CQB or close quarter battle or close quarter combat, which is the sort of that mouse mouse maze for humans, right? Where they're learning hostage rescue or a firehouse for FDNY or, or a medical simulation for emergency medicine. When we're in that environment, we're often working with sort of two different groups, leadership and what we call the sled dogs, the people that are just doing the work. And what happens is what you're describing is many of what we call the operators, the sled dogs who are getting stuff done. But the the residual impact of the way they grew up, the way you just described is that, and I'll use myself as an example. I have a doctorate from Penn, but if you, if Art, if you, if you want to establish my, my IQ and just give me math tests, I'm an idiot. Like you would, you would not want me going anywhere without adult supervision. If that's the only a, a test you give me, I should be incarcerated, right? Like it's not good. And it's because I'm just not, my brain doesn't do math well. And, and that's the challenge is that in a factory learning environment where all of your, your grades get aggregated, then you're often limited by your least, your, the thing you're least good at, right? And so what ends up happening with some of these folks you're describing is my experience is, 
They got this big brain. They're not good at factory learning education, rows and tables and desks with a teacher yelling at them where they have to stay focused, right? Where they're really good is they, is they, as you've told me many times, right? They can get to the answer very quickly. They're often the smartest person in the class. They just can't show their work because it's all so intuitive, but they're always right. And so what they're frustrated about is these kids that are like, not that bright, but know how to do the work or getting the credit. And so they get frustrated and then they're told they're not living up to their potential and they leave. And what they're looking for is a highly motivated group of people who are very quick and and smart and clever, right? But aren't going to get all wrapped up in the writing and stuff. But the impacts, just to send it back to you, the impact is when I show up to the shoot house, the the normal culture of self-depreciating humor is usually la- layered with stuff like, well, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but then they say something brilliant. And I have to actually teach them how to be self-deprecating, meaning like, this is how I understand it, this is how I read it, because I'm like, whether you like it or not, you're actually above the curve in terms of IQ, and you have to stop role modeling like you're an idiot because you're not. It's disingenuous. And it's also not good for the country, and it's not good for your subordinates. But there's all this leftover legacy of them being told they were stupid when in their hearts they knew they weren't. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. And, and that leads into several things. One, I'm glad that we don't incarcerate people for an inability to do math. Um, that would be a huge societal problem. So you you open up several wonderful wonderful things in in the comments that you just made, Preston. One of them is this lifelong learning that they're not as smart as they actually are. That's certainly something that's been reinforced over and over again. And I I actually think that there's some value in that in a inadvertent kind of way, where super smart people. One of the things about very high IQ is in for anybody that's above average IQ when you walk into any space if you're above average IQ you will see things that an average person will not immediately notice you'll pull all of the information in your environment together in a more complete way you'll synthesize it into more meaningful information but the challenge is is since our individual brains are the only ones we'll ever have it's easy to just assume that the rest of the world's seeing things the way that you do but when you're way above average IQ, I will tell you that that is not a safe assumption. And in fact, I will, I'll tell you you're wrong. You don't see the world the way other people do. You just take it for granted. But the, one of the challenges with super smart people is they often see the world so differently that it creates challenges in interacting with the rest of the world because they go, they go through with, with assumptions that everybody else sees it that way and, and they can't figure out how to bring others along with them. And so it can make it difficult for them to interact with the rest of the world. And I love super smart people and they're usually bright enough to find their niche where that's okay and they can survive. So one of the things that was told to me, which I've never forgotten. So I'm at the Wharton school and the Wharton school is an elite Ivy league school at the university of Pennsylvania. I worked there for 10 years and you know, you work with everybody, you work with everybody from the, the Nobel prize winning faculty whose brain is the size of a planet down to the janitorial staff. Right. And you, so you get the entire spectrum of, of the IQ score. And one day I was really frustrated with somebody that weren't getting it. And one of my bosses pulls me aside and says, you know, that feeling that you have where people are working with you and they're just not moving as fast as you are. And I'm like, yeah, most of the faculty feel that way about you. (laughs) So Just remember all of us are on the spectrum, right? So have a little humility and patience because when some of these folks that are figuring out the flux capacitor have to slow down to talk to you, Preston, that's what they're doing. And I'm like, fair enough, fair enough. Right. No, you're hundred percent right. And, and without it being that literal of an explanation, what ends up, I think, happening to a lot of these super smart people who fail to appreciate how bright they are, particularly in, in the uh, special operations community, is some of these deficits that I noted before in the traditional academic setting. And kind of to your point, you know, they sit there and they're like, why don't people get this? I understand it intuitively. Show my work. Show what work. It, everybody knows this, right? And not everybody knows that. And as, the, as they grow up, what that deficit does is it it challenges this internal tacit knowledge of I am smarter than most of the other kids in this room with ah, maybe I'm not because I keep getting in trouble and I'm not doing as well. And in my mind, that ends up creating a much healthier personality to interact with the world. 
it creates some kind of weird humility. It prevents the development of toxic narcissism and other traits like that that are less desirable. And I think it also really contributes to a lot of the resiliency that we see in these individuals because they're used to just getting beaten up, even when part of them kind of doubts if the things they're being called out for are true. Yeah, the thing I would add to that, though, and goes back to something you said earlier, which is so many of our people in our education system are trained in pathology. They're looking for what's wrong. So when you're scoring poorly, the message that you're getting is, oh, you're broken, but we'll try to help fix it for you. And what ends up happening is some of that humility is built from this idea that, oh, I'm broken. And and part of my like life mission is to be like, no, you don't have a learning disability. You just have a different learning profile. You actually are really great at what you do, and the country is grateful that you're there. But it requires that your feral intelligence, right, your your <laughs> the the way you taught yourself how to learn with your unique brain gets utilized on behalf of the country in really special ways. But it's not actually helpful for you to think of yourself as broken. Yeah, hundred percent. And you you just made me think of an experience I had as a very young psychologist in this community. I thought, well, hey, I'm seeing a lot of attentional problems in particular. Let's let's focus on that. I, from my pathology background, I learned all kinds of tips and tricks on how to help people pay attention better. And so I put together a workshop. It was supposed to last an hour. It lasted two hours, and my material lasted maybe 15 minutes because what I discovered was in this room full of super smart people who may have had some of these challenges because they're so smart, they'd found ways to compensate for it that were far better than anything the academics had come up with and far better than the empirically validated methods that I was prepared to teach them that day. I ended up being the one taking all of the notes because they had figured out really unique ways to cope with and monitor and master some of these challenges. And it was it was really a lesson in humility for me as well of, you know, this is a different population and they have to be viewed through a different lens. And I'm grateful to all of the people that suffered with me from the beginning and then helped grind that lens into a, a sharper focus on this over the years. So I think what's interesting about that, and that segues us a little bit, and I, I don't want to stop you from where you're going, but you know, because they are different, because as those of us have worked with them, they know that there are incredible strengths, but there are also times where you want to bounce your forehead off hard surfaces because you're like, why do we have to do this again, right? Why Why is this craziness now showing up? And so that's true both as someone who works with them, but also someone who lives with them, who's married to them, who has them as a parent, right? And so the realities of the uniqueness of them is great in so many ways and also comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah, so let's talk about those challenges, but I, I really want to, in operator terms, double tap this notion. You are absolutely brighter than you probably realize. Your brains are big enough to do almost anything you want. And one of the cool things that I came to appreciate about the military and the special operations culture, whether it's a young Marine going to MARSOC, a young airman going into AFSOC, a young SEAL candidate with Navy Special Warfare or a, a 18 X-ray or other candidate for the for the Green Berets or a young Ranger coming to the Ranger Regiment is they're coming into those worlds at a time where their brains aren't fully developed yet. We We now know that the frontal lobes, the prefrontal cortex, is the last part of the human brain to develop and estimates are now pushing that out to about 24 years of age if you look at some of the meta-analyses. But here's the great thing about that and something important to consider in these populations is whether you have like a traditional attention deficit disorder kind of neurological challenge or whether it's learning patterns or other things, as your frontal lobes develop further, you will get better at emotional regulation, sustained attention, the ability to follow sequential logic, which is one of the reasons a lot of these individuals struggle with math is because they may understand the basic math, but having to do 10 steps in a row and keep track of it and stay focused through that whole process, that's actually the challenge. Um, and gluing that stuff together or even understanding what is the point. I even asked a couple of people, when's the last time you used a quadratic equation to survive your day? And I have yet to hear from anybody who did. I you know, any traditional teacher would say, well, yeah, but the logic inherent in that process that they're using all the time, even to say that they don't need the quadratic equation. So that's kind of funny. 
But it's fascinating to look at the training environment because when you're working with very young recruits and and members of this community, what you'll find is a whole bunch of uh, regulations and structures that are designed to compensate for this. And I don't think anybody's like, hmm, we're seeing a problem with sustained attention, so we're going to build these things in. These were super smart people who over the years, these training models and these, these operational models evolved because they're that way. And they found some really phenomenal solutions without necessarily even meaning to. So one example of that with with very young folks in particular, you have these pre-combat inspections where before they go out on an operation or a significant training event, their squad leader will pull them together and they literally run through a checklist. Do you have chem lights? Do you have your weapon? Do you have bullets? Do you have everything that you need? And then they go out and put them on their on their helicopter and send them off into the dark night. And that's really, really important because if they didn't, you would absolutely end up with operators on the objective without a weapon because they were talking to their family and, hey, Timmy, it's time to go. Oh, okay. Hey, dude, where's your gun? Uh, right? That, that sort of thing because they, they got distracted and they weren't as focused and all of a sudden they're in the middle of it. But over time, as the frontal lobes develop, you end up with these insanely confident people who come out of a training and development environment that inadvertently designed to compensate for those challenges. And it, it's really, really powerful to look at and understand why they do a lot of these things that they might actually find frustrating. They might actually find redundant, but they're still there because they're absolutely vital. And it takes phenomenal people and creates the framework that allows them to actually live up to their potential. And in fact, exceed it, I would argue, a lot of times. Here's what's here's the irony that I never I, I'm always overwhelmed by. So you've got these guys that men and women that we're talking about, right? That have this different learning profile that have struggled to get through factory education. They then get in some leadership, their prefrontal cortex, it gets evolved. They get into a place where now they're going to go back to the schoolhouse. And what do they do? They design a factory learning environment. Like the very thing that they fought against for so many years. They're like, oh, now I'm in charge. Well, what does right look like? Well, what does Harvard do? We'll do that. Except that's not how any of them learned, right? And so I'm constantly like, please stop doing PowerPoints like it's not helpful in the fluorescent lights where you're just focused for long periods of time transmitting information. Your brains don't work that way. Stop doing that. Do what works for you. Yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. The irony of it. But and in fact, if you look at it, one of our most challenging courses in all of special operations is the special operations medic course at Fort Bragg which is amazing training. I mean, these big guys are basically physician's assistants with a little dental and veterinary medicine thrown in as well. But the challenge is, is it's taught by doctors and it is the most traditionally academic setting. And it also is probably the most challenging course with the lowest graduation rate, one of the lowest graduation rates. And I would argue that it's largely due to the restrictions that that more traditional approach creates for them. But I, I want to go back to something you said, Preston, because about you know the impact that this can have on family and, and other settings. This is a really nice example. A lot of these things we're talking about have a really heavy genetic component to them. And when you look at IQ, one of the things I'm fascinated by IQ is that IQ is a big part of what attracts us to people that are like us. So you will often find bright people congregating together and finding their home. I suspect that that was true of wilderness guides. I suspect, I, I know that that's true of the special operations community. And by the way, I'm talking about special operations community, but I've now had the opportunity to work with fire, to work with law enforcement, to work with other mission critical teams, medicine and others. And I find that the people that are in these kind of cutting edge niche, not quite the norm problem sets they all look an awful lot like these individuals I'm describing from the Special Operations Command. They look that way empirically. They interact with you in a very similar way. They're self-deprecating. They're quick-witted. They need something to sustain their interest and curiosity. It, they kind of constantly drive change because they need change. Static won't work for them. They get bored easily. And those are all wonderful things, but there's a huge genetic component to that. And what, what I'll find is very smart people even one of my young commandos out at a bar having a drink with buddies, he sees an attractive person that he wants to get to know better. And it might be the initial physical attraction that gets their eye. 
But the thing that keeps them in that relationship is if the IQ matches up. And, and there needs to be a pretty good alignment of IQ or the relationship is very likely to fail. There's some pretty good research on that that really couples that sustain long-term relationships stay are, are fairly close in IQ profile. And I've certainly found that as I've had the opportunity to do like relationship work. And so the a lot of spouses will come in and say, hey, I want to take the same testing packet my commando took. Let me do that. And and I'm shocked at how similar they actually are. That old idea of opposites attract kind of went out the window for me many years ago because I actually found if I'm looking at this with the tools that I have to look at their personality and their psychological makeup, they're actually very, very similar. But what that means is I have exceptional people who are finding other exceptional people, and then they're sharing exceptional genetics and creating exceptional children. And that's a really nice way to say, if you've got some of these attentional challenges, if you've got some of these traditional academic challenges, and then you get together with somebody else smart and you have kids, there's a high likelihood that some of those kids are going to have those challenges too. And one of the other things I've noticed, particularly in folks that have attentional challenges, is that because they're so smart, they kind of intuitively understand, if I want to, if I want to more fully live up to my potential... I need external structure. So even though they hated the school setting, at least they knew the boundaries. And as they leave that setting, they're like, man, I'm kind of flailing on my own. I need some boundaries. What out there has good boundaries? Oh, the military has good boundaries. In fact, they got more boundaries than they can stand. So they find the military. And fortunately and unfortunately, a lot of times in the people that that these individuals tend to, to form lifetime partnerships with, One of the core attributes that the other person brings to that relationship is the ability to provide some of that structure. So they may marry somebody who's better with attention, who's better in traditional academic things, who's better at at remembering things and kind of navigating life in that more structured way. And that's wonderful for them. But boy, does it create some huge challenges for the person that got pulled into their circle. For example, I've got an operator. he, He brings his spouse into this. And they find themselves having to basically be that squad leader with the pre-combat inspection list of, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Do you remember this? I need you to remember this. And it's exhausting. And now when they have children and some of those children have some of these same opportunities slash challenges, the, the spouses of operators are some of the, the most sleep deprived and exhausted people I've ever met. And they're not wrong if they're feeling that way because they are basically the prefrontal cortex, sometimes for an entire family. And, and that is exhausting and unappreciated. And if you're listening to this and you're having that experience or have had that experience, I guess it is it, challenging to tell you what to do about it. But if having it be validated is a value, then you're not crazy. That is absolutely the experience you're having. I think that's the big message of this whole thing for everybody is you're not crazy, right? Like, you know, you chose the hard path. And if you married one of those people, you also chose the hard path, right? You're not a victim. This is the choice you made. So find some ways to make it sustainable. Yeah, 100%. One thing I failed to say earlier is particularly with the attentional challenges, usually the way that shows up, particularly with super smart people, is as a memory problem. And, And so that's one of the challenges they have in a traditional academic setting where you're expected to just wrote memorize information and these are people who struggle uh with that kind of memory primarily because they fail to pay attention in the first place so the thing is is if you don't pay attention to information long enough to encode it as a memory it's not going to be there to get later like it it never existed as a memory it went in one ear and out the other and and this is a very real phenomenon so think about the implications of that in a training environment think about that in a traditional academic environment and even more importantly think about that in terms of a personal relationship if you have a relationship with one of these people and you say hey on your way home can you grab some milk or hey can you remember to do this you're you uh, you know our kid has a baseball game or our daughter has a ballet recital or whatever the case may be they'll be like oh yeah i'm super excited about that and then the time comes and it's like wait what we we have what you know and it's it's because they failed to pay attention in that moment and were unable to recall it because it literally went in one ear and out the other one of the things i'll jump in with is that one of the reasons i became so enamored with the book the bullet journal 
Mm. is because the bullet journal forces me to do journaling where I'm not just writing down the things I need to do, but also the things I also should be doing, right? Like exercise, eating right, spending time with my family, reflecting, reading, like all the things in your life that are necessary to sustain you. For my little brain, right, I actually have to write that down in order to do them. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So I will give one very simple trick for people that are in the circle of life of one of these one of these gifted <laughs> I kind of want to call them special people, you know, in the special operations community yep. is is a trick that they themselves use all the time called the back brief where if it is really important that one of these individuals in your life remember something you're telling them, ask them to repeat it. And and don't be insulted or hurt when they're unable to. But in that moment, you repeat it and then ask them to repeat it, and that will have focused them in. But that process of repeating it will help them form the memory that will dramatically increase the likelihood of them remembering it later. I would say that this is probably one of the number one scenarios people will describe in relationship challenges and leadership challenges is that people forget stuff and and they don't remember. And, And as I've traced it back, it a lot of times comes down to this attention. Yeah. One of the things that I'll also reference on this, going back to something you said a little while ago, is both of us have had the experience where we're at a we're get invited to a barbecue of all these operators and we meet their super smart spouse, but then we meet their super nerdy kid. And right. it's always amazing when you have a straight up savage who is talking to you and introducing your kid and they're playing Minecraft and talking in like just all sorts of nerdy terms and do not want to play sports. And I'm like, yep, that's that's another version of you right there. Yeah, no, I I distinctly remember going to uh, I was at uh, one of these special units that where I was assigned for a time, and we had this phenomenal father son retreat, and went up into the woods, and you, you're surrounded by all these operators that you've seen literally do some of the most heroic things you can think of, superstar athletes. They just bring this incredible capability to the battlefield or almost anything that they do. And you would almost expect their kids to kind of be jocks, you know, if you're if you kind of have a simple view of it or to look a lot like this finished product that I live around all the time. And what I found was the exact opposite. There were kids over in the corner reciting Pokemon characters and playing Pokemon. Some of the most amazing Lego creations I've ever seen in my life. Kids wearing superhero uniforms because in their mind, their imagination was so rich, they truly believed that they were that superhero and they were living the life. It was so validating and so awesome to see. And some of the dads be like, Yeah, this is my kid. And they're kind of proud, but they're a little bit embarrassed because they know that the kid doesn't quite align with, with you know, expectations or norms. And and yet you can just feel the love radiating through it. And it, it was one of those pivotal moments when I realized just how unique and how special this community actually is, was when I was able to interact with their families and their kids in particular. And it was awesome. And it gave me hope for tomorrow. The reality is most of them won't end up being operators. That's not going to be their path, but they are probably going to have an impact on the world because they're super smart and super creative. And they have parents that will tolerate that. I think the, the big one of the big reasons as we start to sort of get to the end of this, and, and certainly not to cut you off, but just to put some bookends on things is because when I meet a lot of operators who are struggling both and primarily when they return home, right? They've lived the life. They're either coming home for a tour or they're coming home, they're transitioning and they're told, Hey, it's time to be normal again. And my message to them is you weren't normal to begin with. Right. (laughs) And don't judge yourself by your failing to adjust to their normal, right? You don't learn the way they do. They don't, you don't go to class the way they do. And so being able to understand that there are some there are some huge opportunities with your big brain, but there are some legitimate challenges to integrating your brain with the rest of society. And you need to take responsibility for that, both for yourself and for your spouse and for your kids, right? There needs to be some things that you do in your life to take ownership of the fact that don't get frustrated because you don't fit in. Start with the assumption you're not going to fit in and then figure out how to like, Meet them in the middle, right? Let them know who you are, find out who they are, and then find a way that you don't drive each other crazy in the process. And so I kind of wanted to just say that as a way to kind of also point us at like, what are some things we can do Monday, either at work or at home, to acknowledge the way our brain works in this this learning profile 
and to do it in a more sustainable way that that sustains our relationships and ourselves? That's a great question, Preston. And, and it's also a very challenging one to answer because what I've learned is that because they're so unique, they end up also being unique in so many ways in every single relationship that it's tough to make blanket suggestions that are most helpful. But what I will say is that if you're listening to this, what I have found is simply giving you a slightly different vector and angle from which to view some of these challenges allows you to then harness that big brain of yours to think about these challenges in a different way. And the solutions and creative approaches that I've seen come from smart people with good information armed in a different way to face these challenges, they do pretty incredible things. So I know you were asking me for more specific things. I My take would be, think about this, mull it over, ponder on it, and then you figure out how to apply it to a boss that you failed to connect with, to a strained relationship. And if this described you, what impact is that having in the moment? And how can what you've learned change the way that you interact in that environment? That would be my challenge to you. And hey, Preston, for the sake of time, there's two other things that I think would be super important to cover for uh, just a couple of minutes. When I'm asked what's special about special operations, I've really come over the years to boil it down to these three things, way above average intelligence. And I know we've spent a lot of time talking about that because I think that it impacts the other two things and it impacts pretty much everything because that's that's the foundation that we came into this world with, our environment shaped, and here we are failing to live up to our potential and yet wait, now we found a place where we do. And, and it's a special thing, right? But one of the two other core attributes that really define this population are very low anxiety and uh, very high an ability to emotionally compartmentalize. And here's the thing about anxiety. If you've survived any of these gateways and pipelines to be on a mission critical team, I don't care which one it is, medical, fire, law enforcement, military, special operations, it doesn't matter. If you have survived that and you are a successful member of one of those teams, you have a lower than average anxiety threshold. You don't panic as easily. You don't get stressed out about things as easily. When other people are under pressure and they start losing their mind, your heart rate actually goes down a little bit and you become, this is one of those rare moments where the adrenaline and the other things that often have a negative impact on performance in this population, it actually seems to sharpen focus and, and expand the ability to sustain attention and concentration. And one of the other powerful things about people who struggle with attention, they're often very good at task switching. This notion of multitasking, that doesn't really exist. Humans aren't capable of doing that. But people that are super successful in this space are often very good at task switching and doing so very fast and moving from one thing to the next and then back very quickly and being able to kind of keep multiple fires going at the same time. But this low anxiety thing, is a it creates unique challenges and opportunities. What it means is on the battlefield, these are people who will stay calm in the worst of situations in a stressful operating environment, operating room environment, or a woodland fire, you name it, any of those environments where it can go from the most boring thing in the world and a minute later, it's one of the most intense experiences of anybody's lives, right? That the ability to stay calm with that rapid shift is a really, really big deal. And I already kind of alluded, I think some of that comes from being told what their deficits are throughout their life and having to learn how to just be like, yeah, well, what are you going to do? There'll be homework to not do tomorrow too. Let's go play, cha-cha, right? And they they learn how to just let that, that kind of criticism roll off their backs. And it creates these very resilient people of which a core component is this low anxiety. There's a lot of great things about that. You can see why that would be valuable in the jobs that they've opted to pursue and the career paths they've opted to pursue. But it also creates some unique challenges. If you need some anxiety or some kind of neurological and physical arousal to actually get stuff done. And, and when, you, when you have interest in something, you'll often have kind of just the right amount of arousal and anxiety and, and energy behind it to where you're just in the zone. Whether that's, whether that's moving through a shoot house with CQB, fighting fires, law enforcement takedowns, you name it, any number of things. But when you're kind of in that flow state, that's an optimal amount of arousal and anxiety. The problem is, is when you are asked to do things that you really have no interest in, 
and don't really care about. And your anxiety is very low about that. And, and this population as a whole is often seen as people who procrastinate and wait until the last minute. And I believe that this low anxiety is one of the biggest reasons for that, because until a time hack gets close enough that it starts to elevate that stress and that, that neurological arousal and that anxiety enough, they almost can't perform. And, and, you know, you, I, I watch this parents with these young kids. You've known about this assignment for the last three months. This is like the full semester project. It, we have 48 hours to get this thing done. And yet somehow the kid manages to turn out something that's one of the best in the class. And the parents will just just beat their head against the wall. Like, why in the world didn't we space this out over three months? You stayed up for two nights in a row. And sure, you succeeded, but you still failed. I just want to tell you that. Right. Why couldn't you do this before? And the reality is, I don't know if they could have. Like, like you might be able to break it down and and give them incremental steps, but their ability to be fully invested in them along the way is low enough that the overall performance is probably going to be down. So that that this is a huge double-edged sword, right? That arousal and anxiety level starts to go up, and all of a sudden I've got optimal performance right when I need it, but sometimes they miss their estimate, and now they're late. And it can create an immense amount of stress for anybody else in their life who needs more structure or more predictability, particularly if you are one of those individuals who's providing the frontal lobe for this individual or the rest of the family. Trying to do that for multiple people is exhausting. And the things that are then required from other family members, for example, to try and elevate anxiety can create a lot of friction because it looks like nagging. It looks like punishment. It looks like withholding fun things to do. It looks like consequences that are less desirable. It, all in an effort to try and motivate them and to get them to get this thing done. But boy, it can create a lot of tension and a lot of stress in relationships. One of the things I found a lot of times in, in marital distress, what I'll often find is a misalignment of anxiety where you'll see a spouse who's very anxious about certain things and the operational person or the member of the mission critical team who just doesn't share that anxiety about it. I'll have an operator come home from a deployment. His anxiety and arousal is about being back just in time for the Super Bowl. He's been doing research. He's got this new big screen TV. The buddies are coming over and he wants to make sure the maintenance is done on his truck. Then life is good. The spouse is worried about the fact that the lawn hasn't been mowed for the last six months while he was gone because the mower broke the first week. There's children and dogs missing in the neighborhood. Nobody knows where they are, but they're probably in that jungle somewhere. And she, they really want that to be done. And so now they have to do these things that elevate the operator's arousal enough to where he'll just throw down the remote, fine, and he'll storm out the door and go get it done. And then kind of expect things to just revert back to normal. But a lot of times things are said that can't be unsaid. And there's very real damage that can be done in those relationships. So sometimes simply understanding that misalignment of the anxiety can be valuable in these relationships. I, I had one example where I had a spouse who heard some, one of these conversations come up to me afterward. And she said, it was really funny, almost exactly the scenario you described. He comes home. These are the things he's interested in. I've got a whole list of stuff that's gone wrong while he's gone that he's the only one who can fix. And we, I realized we were starting that dance of he didn't care and I was trying to make him care. And so I, I stopped and I said, hey, remember we went to that thing and that, and that shrink talked to us about this and, and explained that this is what happens. And if you remember, ultimately, you are going to end up doing this. So let's just cut through all that noise in the middleman and just go to the end state. And she said, and she said, to his credit, he looked at me and he goes, huh, you're right. And he just whistled as he walked out the door and did it. And peace was restored and tension was removed and never created in the first place. And that, that's a good example of sharing information where I could not have told them how to solve that situation, but they took this information and used it to avert additional friction and tension in their relationship. I've also heard you talk about, especially with teenage children, right? Like the need for connection and belonging, the need for intimacy, the need for connection. And you get somebody who's somewhat stoic and the kids will press their buttons until they get some sort of emotional reaction because that's what they need. And sometimes the answer is just give it to them. Right. So that's a beautiful segue into the last thing that I think is super important to talk about, Preston, is this ability to emotionally compartmentalize. 
that doesn't mean these individuals don't have emotion. I will tell you, I've seen the personality testing. They are capable of and frequently experience the full, healthy, functional range of emotion. They get sad, they get happy, they get excited, they get bored, all of that, right? But what they what they seem to have evolved over their lifespan is basically a kill switch for it. And when the emotion starts to get in the way, they just flip the switch. And and it's not necessarily even festering and boiling inside of them, you know, trying to find ways to ooze out. Like they literally turn it off. And, and it, it's really fascinating to go into like a conventional control center for any of these kind of environments, whether it's firefighting, law enforcement, special operations. Where in a more conventional force, when there's something really intense happening, the communications match that. The radio calls are louder, they're they're faster, they're more disjointed, they're kind of confusing. You can hear the urgency and the panic in people's voices. And when you go into one of these mission-critical control settings, it's almost like the oxygen left the room. Everything's very calm and very clipped. The communications are like they came out of a textbook to the point where it's almost eerie. I've watched it for two decades and I still can't fully understand or explain how they're doing it. But a lot of it is this emotional kill switch. They love emotion. They can experience emotion. They tolerate emotion. And when it starts to impact their ability to function, they flip the switch and it goes away. And then it creeps back up, sometimes within 24 to 48 hours, sometimes a couple of weeks. Um, I find that in a military setting, post-deployment, it takes about 30 days which we often then create new challenges. It's like, hey, you've been home for a month. We're going training for two weeks. So your kids with abandonment issues, you can get back to them in a couple of weeks, right? It, it, it's like super challenging in that environment. But, but this is a critical skill set and capability in the role that a lot of these individuals on mission critical teams play. Huge double-edged sword in every other part of their life. Because if you love or care about one of these individuals, and the emotion in your relationship or in the family dynamics starts to boil up and surge, right as it most needs to be embraced, they just flip the switch and they become very cold and logical and calculating and disconnected. And for people on the receiving end of that, they feel dismissed. They feel like they're the ones who are crazy. They feel like they're the ones who have a problem. And it can really be off-putting and create a lot of distance in a relationship that isn't helpful and is not desirable, usually for anybody in the relationship. But in the moment, that operator is just trying to survive. Yeah. And the trick that they've learned over time is to just make it go away. And so they do. So back to your example with the teenage kids, right? Remember, teenagers don't have fully developed frontal lobes. They are literally still brain damaged in a conventional sense. Um, I always tell, told my teenage children they were brain damaged, and I'm sure they appreciated that. And that won't be brought up in any future therapy sessions at all. But, but one of the big parts that the prefrontal cortex impacts is emotional regulation. So teenagers are absolutely emotional because they literally don't have the wiring yet to control their emotions. So their job is to kind of run around pouring little puddles of emotion all over the house. So when I have a spouse who stays home, for example, or who is in more in the home environment and has to interact with this emotional cesspool to a degree throughout the day, their anxiety levels up, their emotion levels up. There's all these puddles of emotion all over the house. Mr. Killswitch comes walking through the door, slips in a puddle of emotion, flips the switch and just disengages. And so now the family wants them to understand, wants to connect. And the only option they have is to ironically escalate the level of emotion. And it, it's kind of like it's kind of like watching a person in a foreign country who doesn't know the language speak louder as though that's somehow going to break through the, the language barrier, right? It, it's a very similar phenomenon. And again, it can leave everybody else feeling dis very disconnected. So one of the best things that the operator in that environment can do is even if they're faking it, engage on an emotional level. And here's the dirty little secret. If they start faking it, it will very quickly become real. And they will have a very real emotional interaction with these other people in their life. It may not be a positive one. It might be filled with negative emotion and tension and, and anger and all kinds of other things that, that they were trying to avoid in the first place. But on the upside, it was real. And it was connected. and. And as long as the right things are done in the aftermath, 
that can actually be a really powerful emotional bonding event that otherwise would have been missed because of the kill switch. So there's two things I want to come back to just that you referenced. One is you talked about the 30 day sort of four week transition period. And one of the things when you first introduced me to that, I followed up with a bunch of interviews. And weirdly enough, this is what I found. Do you know how long it takes for astronauts to acclimatize? I've interviewed a bunch of astronauts to this to the International Space Station about four to six weeks. Interesting. I've interviewed a bunch of mountaineers who climb Everest K2 above a certain threshold, sort of the, the kill threshold in space. Do you how long it takes to acclimatize to camp one or two or three, four to six weeks. There is something <laughs> physiological about the fact that when people transition back from combat, transition back from an extraordinary event or transition into a new environmental context, we're still humans. We still have there's a certain amount of process that just has to happen. And that we think, oh, well, everything happens instantaneously, except our body doesn't. Our body still is biological. It still takes time. The second thing I want to say is that one of the things I want to make sure is really said out loud is that one of the dangers of studying the most elite operators who absolutely, without question, can take that kill switch and shut off their compartmentalize their emotions is that we believe all operators can. And what happens is, is that it's more likely to say, and I have, I'm struggling word compartmentalize because in my experience, it's more like they shut down the flow of emotional stimulus. They don't compartmentalize it. The problem is that depending on how you good you are at it, some of it's still leaking through. But what's also happening is that flow doesn't stop. They're not stopping the source of it because the brain, as we know from Kahneman, is half cognitive, half emotional. So what ends up happening is this, this other emotion, which was sort of trapped in the compartment or however you want it, that we don't make meaning of it. And what the research is starting to show is that if we don't take that back out of the compartment or open that flow back up, within about six to nine months, it starts to basically go septic. It's not very good for you. And so this process of regardless if you are stone cold like operator, and you can't be totally stone cold if you have a family and children because emotion is part of that, is that you have to every once in a while reopen those those valves or those compartments rummage around just be like do i get this does this make sense to me and if it doesn't then you have to take the time and take responsibility for making meaning of those extreme experiences good or bad yeah 100 percent. and and i mean we could literally do five podcasts on how to do that and maybe at some point we should you know how do you unpackage that because the uh, the other thing i've noticed that's related to this preston is a lot of times the events that require them to utilize the kill switch the most heavily are discrete blocks in time. It's a specific event, a specific deployment, a specific operation, one night during a deployment, whatever the case may be. And so it kind of gets, it it has this box that it resides in, in a chronological time kind of way. And what I'll often see happen is when they leave the environment that created the structure that created that chronography, then it starts to get slippery on them, right? It, the the walls of the boxes aren't aren't don't remain intact, and and I really see this post retirement when guys get out of this environment where they might start to experience the emotion, and they kind of don't know what to do with it because they still have the kill switch, but there's not boundaries around it. Right. There, there's not a clear now I throw it. There's not a clear now I can let it back up. There's not a clear do I need it at all? Or it's a dimmer switch instead of an on-off switch all of a sudden. Right. And they don't it that can create some very real challenges. And I would refer people here to some of the amazing work you and others have done in residue, um, in the residue white paper on this, because there's some really powerful things to think about in what happens when that switch is not as binary as it has been for many events in their life. Yeah, and and I also, a recurrent theme that you'll hear me say a lot is we often are talking about folks who leave the military and that last transition out and how much they struggle with that. And what I've been encouraging all the teams to really think about is 
that every transition from the moment you enter boot camp or enter buds or you enter whatever team you're entering in is a transition. High school to the team's a transition. Transition from the first team to the second team's a transition. And what I think we all need to do is recognize that we are we need those skills. We will need them later. And that we need to actually lean in on those uncomfortable moments where you're not, you're no longer who you once were, but you're not yet who you're going to be. What are the sustainable mm-hmm. skills that will get you through them? Because you'll absolutely need them at the end, right? And too often we take these things for granted or we don't pay attention. And those forks in the in the path, deciding which fork to, to use and, and, and knowing how to manage that will serve you for the rest of your life. And so what I encourage every parent to do is every kid who has a transition, take a pause and acknowledge it. Like, hey, this is the first of many, right? So let's talk about some sustainable practices. Yeah, kind of building in bookmarks on life, right? Like like I think that's the value of the start of the school year, right? That magic of going shopping for school supplies. It's kind of like, I don't want to project my own experience, but it was like, all right, this year I'm going to live up to my full potential. Yeah, that's right. Right? It's going to start with this super sharp pencil and or, you know, New Year's. Or if you look at any number of institutions, religious institutions, you know, you have these very symbolic acts like baptism or other things like that that create a bookmark in, in your path of life, whatever that happens to be. And I mean, you even see that within organizations like special operations, right? Rank promotions and other things like that that create these bookmarks. And to your point, they need to be celebrated or at least highlighted for what they are and for the significance that they represent. Yep. At, at some future date, we're going to be doing a team cast on the, the role of ritual in the teams. And um, we're working on that now. But I want to start to close this out and just really thank you, Art, for coming on. I know we've known each other for a long time. I wanted to get you on here. And I think you needed to retire for us to be able to do it a little bit. So congratulations on your retirement. Thank you. Um, I think the lessons that we've learned about this population is really important in order to validate who folks are. And I think this is the beginning of a, of a conversation that's long overdue. And so I'll let you have the final words before we close out. I appreciate that, Preston. And I'm so grateful for the chance to uh, be able to have this conversation with you and hopefully for people that that might be able to benefit from a little different way to think about the circumstances in which they find themselves. But but more than anything else, I wanna I wanna thank the people that are on mission critical teams of all the different stripes, and also for the families that that support them. I have a family that supported this lifestyle. I've been surrounded by families that support this lifestyle. It is not an easy path, and many people entered into this world without fully understanding what they were signing up for as family members and and others and. Yet I've watched them thrive. I've watched them conquer. I've watched them succeed for many of the same reasons that that their loved one did and does. And I just want to extend my heartfelt gratitude for the sacrifices that I know go unnoticed and for all the times that you've been unthanked. It doesn't necessarily go unnoticed. And just because it's not noticed in the moment doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. A lot of times it had a huge impact. It's a big deal. So thank you. Well, thank you, sir. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the TeamCast. Thank you again for listening to our TeamCast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson at Janice at MissionCTI.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at MissionCTI.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the TeamCast. Have a great day.